Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Are you tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? Well, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just watch me love myself That's all I want Got what I want That's all I want I'm not sorry I'm Claire Fallon And I'm Emma Gray And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows, and we can't live without them. But we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to a Love to See It bonus episode you know, when in the course of Bachelor events, it just becomes necessary for a former Bachelorette to dissolve the bonds that tie her to the franchise and write just like a piercing, heart-wrenching essay about the racism she experienced during her time with the show and publish it in Vulture. You know, we have to talk about it. We just must. I mean, Rachel Lindsay, the first Black Bachelorette, also one-time co-host of the official Bachelor podcast, and constructive critic of the franchise, officially kind of stepped away this spring after the longtime host of the show, Chris Harrison, defended the racist actions of a contestant on Matt James' season. During a long and extremely disrespectful interview with Rachel Lindsay on Extra. Yeah, and she, you know, received a lot of racist backlash and harassment after this, uh, after Chris Harrison faced some very deserved consequences and ended up parting ways with the franchise for which she was blamed. And also collected an, you know, eight-figure check, so. Yes, well, she finally opened up about this whole experience and her whole time on the franchise in this essay. And today, we're joined by a very special guest, Erin Evans, senior national editor at HuffPost, who used to be our editor at HuffPost and who we miss very much. Hi, Erin. Hey, y'all. I miss y'all too so much, but I'm so glad the pod is is back. So let's dig into this, this essay. Rachel published this piece in, in Vulture, in New York Magazine's TV issue, uh, as told to Allison P. Davis, who is a brilliant uh, reporter. And it's really kind of both an account of why she stepped away from the show, what her experience was of this situation with Chris Harrison, while also digging all the way back to the very beginning of her time with the franchise and her whole journey through it and kind of the side of it that she hasn't been able to talk about publicly as honestly as you might, uh, given that she was still affiliated with the show, that she was trying to influence it from within. And now that she's stepped away, she's being a little bit more blunt about some of it. So I think we should start by kind of just going through some of the the broad strokes of the essay. It's like fairly lengthy. So we'll dig into some of the sort of specific moments she renegotiates. Um, but I thought one of the the major themes in it is that she talks about what it took for her to be cast as the the first Black lead to begin with. She says, quote, I had to be a good Black girl, an exceptional Black girl. I had to be someone the viewer could accept. And I was a token until I made sure I wasn't. And I think that right there was sort of like the 
the thesis or like the nut graph of this essay, like she had to be this quote unquote exceptional symbol, someone that could be palatable to a white audience. Like she is a savvy, brilliant woman who understands herself and her own life experiences. And she was not going to be used as sort of like a lifeless tool by the franchise for its own growth at the expense of of her well-being. And people took that very intensely. Yeah, I, I'm curious what you guys both think uh, about her diagnosis of the situation and also the kind of debate she's always having about whether to do the show or whether to continue with the show, which is, you know, in the context of this show, I am a token. I am being presented as worthy because I'm exceptional. Um, But at the same time, isn't it good to have representation on this very popular franchise? Isn't it better to sort of participate and bring that representation than to not? And she's always kind of weighing those two things and comes down in different places at different times. Erin, what did you think about that? For me, I had never watched The Bachelor and was only interested in watching The Bachelorette because Rachel Lindsay was going to be the first Black Bachelorette. And I finally had like an entry point for the show, right? I love reality television. I love mess. I love drama. (laughs) Um, And this this show has all of it. Um, I also really specifically like reality dating shows. Um, And um, to see her be the first Black Bachelorette was great for a number of reasons, just because of what I like to consume on TV. But I saw myself in Rachel Lindsay, right? She is, we are the same age. (laughs) She's like six months older than me. Uh, We are both from Dallas. And this kind of idea of being like this good Black girl in a white dominated sphere is, you know, I'm in journalism, which is very white. Um, And it's hard to, you know, track up the ranks in, in this industry. And um, it is important to see that, which is what drew me in. And what I what I liked about this essay a lot was that getting to hear it from her first, like this wasn't a Q&A. It was really like, as told to Alison P. Davis in her own words, really tracked the whole journey. And I thought that that was really powerful, but also as somebody who knows ABC and kind of has seen a little bit of what Bachelor Nation can bring out of people. I thought the conclusion of her coming out of Bachelor Nation, stepping away from it, really seemed like the logical conclusion for it. And I hope that this essay and, you know, the experience of Matt James on The Bachelor is is helping them kind of reckon with the ways to move forward. Yeah, it's interesting because Rachel, for sort of a while, was quite critical of the show, even publicly, after being Bachelorette, and remained within the fold. They welcomed her within the fold. She continued to associate herself as sort of a friendly critic. And she's not the only person who's had that role in Bachelor Nation, but, like, I think that because she was such an important symbol for them of their, like, willingness to be, you know, to cast diversely... Um, that was important to the show. And yet, like, there, there is a limit to that. Like, there is a point where the critique is, is not welcome anymore. And so you see, like, I feel like she was sort of expected to remain in, in a little bit of a box of just giving enough critique to keep everyone comfortable without really rocking the boat. And also without a lot of, you know, institutional support to help her deal with what happens when you are an outspoken Black woman who is criticizing a white cultural product. And I think that there was a total lack of awareness there on the part of of the franchise, because as she states, and as we know, like the majority of leadership on the franchise and the majority of middle management, majority of employees are white who work on the show. Um, And so she was sort of left as the the one and only for a while to sort of like 
play this important role, but without any sort of safety net, really. Yeah, I thought the part where she started talking about making sure that she had someone who could do her makeup and the hair and like, what kind of hairstylist do you want? What, you know, what do you want your image to be is like really indicative of like making something look really pretty from the outside, but the inside, the structure of the actual people who are working there, she didn't have a black producer who she could be like, girl, now, you know, this is not cool. Like, we can't, I don't like this. Or like, can we fix this? Can I just talk to somebody about this experience in a real way where they can actually not just listen to me, but hear me and act on, on how I'm feeling in some of these situations is like, I mean, it's representative of so many problems with when we talk about diversity and representation is like, we actually want to also be included and inclusion is so important. And like part of inclusion is making sure that there is like actual equity in the work that's being done and not just how it, everything looks and presents itself. Yeah. I think you're speaking to the part of the essay specifically where she talks about, I think at one point, like saying to her producers, like you're expecting me to both like educate you about how to produce the first black lead. And I also have to be the first black lead. So you're making me do a multitude of labor here in addition to the thing that I was hired for. So she talks also about just the fact that the Bachelor audience is also wrapped up in this. And that was one of the big takeaways. Even if the show finds it beneficial to allow her to be part of the the franchise and to critique them and sort of hold them to account, um, they might feel like that works for them well enough. But then she is subjected to the response of this audience that they've cultivated, which is people who just want to consume a product that is white, Midwestern, Southern, blonde, light-eyed Christian, as she puts it. And that doesn't change. And I think she says, like, there is a subset of the audience that is very comforted by this product, and specifically its sameness, and they do not enjoy being challenged. And her very presence in that space presented a challenge to this subset of the audience. And given how white the production team is and the executive team of the show, I like you have to wonder if that was even something that they considered because they haven't really, they didn't really have to before her season. Um, It was sort of assumed like, yeah, the audience always like doesn't like a villain, but then they forget or like you you didn't have the out and out racism, you know, that Rachel had to face when she stepped into that role. And even when she was you know, really far along on Nick's season and being presented as, like, a very romantically and sexually desirable person for this white man to date. I think the way that that she writes about the audience made me think almost of the franchise as this sort of broken algorithm that, like, it's like, oh, well, we just take the person who seems like they'd be the best lead and have XYZ factors from each cast, and then we cast for them, and yada, 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 here we are. Like, how did we end up with this super white uh, show that really elevates, like, blonde Christian people and that caters to that audience? But, like, that's because the show is built with all these assumptions and all these decisions are made, and then you act like it's just, like, chugging along (laughs) own and it's like whoops it got sort of white supremacy there but like it's (laughs) it doesn't actually happen by accident um even if it's not like super intentional it still is happening through real choices and decisions that are being made should we get into uh some of the specific moments from rachel's time on the show that she talks about because there were some things here that there's some some new information and that she's really honest about. Um, maybe we should start by talking about Rachel's fight with Vanessa, who ended up winning their season uh, and getting engaged to Nick File at yeah. the end. And they were sort of not friends in the house. 
No, I thought this was really interesting. This is a fight that we've heard alluded to a lot, kind of in Bachelor media and in spoilers and stuff for years. Um, and they had both generally addressed it. But we had never heard about it in as much detail as Rachel described it. She says that, you know, for whatever normal reasons that, like, occur in often on these seasons, you know, they didn't get along. Vanessa was very into Nick. Nick was also into Rachel. They didn't gel, and Vanessa was very, like, insecure and and threatened. This is not an uncommon dynamic. But I guess production was like, you guys have to talk this out. And they, she said they staged a scene where she was pretending to read, and Vanessa came over and said, hey, can I talk to you? Um, and the first thing that Rachel observes is she says that, looking back, she sees that that, even from, like, the jump, that that set up, made Vanessa look like the bigger person. Like, she was the one being magnanimous enough to want to, you know, fix this conflict, even though, obviously, both of them had been given instructions by production that they had to speak. Um, And she was immediately had her, like, ears perked up and was worried that she would be portrayed to the audience as an angry Black woman. Because what Vanessa says, first off, is, I feel like you bullied me in the house, which is a very charged thing to say. And Rachel talks about the rest of this conversation and how she said, you know, that's an extreme word. I need examples of how I bullied you. Uh, Vanessa would say, oh, you didn't look me in the eye during that conversation. And Rachel said, oh, well, that's not bullying. That just means I'm probably not fucking with you. Uh, Vanessa you know, it was like, no, you ostracized me. And she began to get emotional. And Rachel thought, you know, this is going to be bad. She's crying. I'm not. I'm going to look cold. But she's very conscious this whole time not to raise her voice, not to fuel the impression that she knows she's already being put in the position of giving, that she is angry. And then afterwards, she confronts her producers. Um, they're like, why Why were you being so cold during that. And she says, she starts crying and she says, don't you understand what it's like to be a black woman in this house full of white folks and for a white woman to cry in your face and call you a bully? And she says, I hope you all show this in its entirety. And instead the producers say, this will never air. And it didn't, we never saw any of this. Uh, Every beat of this was so fascinating to me. Erin, what did you think when you were reading this? Honestly, reading that passage reconfirmed probably for the thousandth time that I could never be on a reality dating show. I consider myself to be a pretty thoughtful person about like how people are portrayed and like the angry black woman stereotype on television is something that I would never wish upon any person to like be a part of. And thinking through like asking that question, like, oh, give me an example of, of how I have bullied you. Like, even that, I don't think I would have had the foresight to to actually have a dialogue there. I think I would have shut down and it would have been, I would have gone to the other end of that spectrum. And like, kudos to her for, for you know, acknowledging and knowing what that moment was and calling it out. Yeah, it's, it's true. She's got to be very, she's like building a defense. She's yeah. thinking almost legally in this moment. And she is a lawyer, but also she knows the scrutiny that she's specifically under. I was thinking uh, also of how much is constructed by production that doesn't look constructed. Like, it looks very natural who's going up to someone else to say something because, or whenever whenever a contestant seems to voluntarily do something, you find yourself in, like, this spiral of, like, well, maybe the producers made them do that. And then you're like, well, but I also just kind of have to watch the show. Like, this is being presented to me as what they're doing. And so it's... They put her in that position to set up this conversation. She doesn't choose her role in that conversation, but then she has to bear the impression that's created by that role. And that's yet another thing that is like, sort of an easy fix. Like if you had more people of color as producers, then you might not have as many situations where you had no one who could look at something and say, hey, that's going to put 
this Black woman in a really bad position and put her in the position to be portrayed and perceived in a way that, like, we as a show are not trying to endorse. Well, I mean, this would require them to actually care about, you know, their Black and Brown contestants. But, like, if the show says they do, it's just yet another example of something that could could have been, like, an easy swap or an easy change. It was also crazy to me that, like, that the producer in that moment could recognize that, like, that didn't, that didn't rise to the occasion of what we wanted it, it to for it to actually be able to air on television, despite her getting really emotional and it clearly being, even just reading it, felt compelling enough to actually visualize that and see both sides of, of, of what was happening there. I was thinking about that, like, why didn't they air it? And I feel like it's not because it wasn't dramatic enough, as you say, but I think there are a couple of things that might be. One is that Vanessa was the front runner, and she did end up winning, and they wouldn't want to show it in a way where Vanessa looked bad. The other is that Rachel clearly was a person they had in mind for Bachelorette, because as she says in the essay, like the new head of ABC at the time, uh, was a Black woman, really wanted a lead of color. They clearly had their eye on this, like, gorgeous, accomplished Black woman. And it, if it didn't make her look good, then that wouldn't be good for them either. So it almost was like, unless they really wrapped it out and both came off well, it almost was a no-win for them to air. Also, like, if Rachel really, like, spun out in that moment and they could play it for drama that way, maybe it would have been more tempting. But because she maintained her composure, they were like... Nah. <laughs> we also wanted to talk about, she talked about, like, the men who are cast on her season and how this sometimes put her in a bad position. Like, she felt like there wasn't enough diversity on her season. She had, obviously, a racist who was cast on her season. And she says she had Black men who were cast who did not normally date Black women. Um, and so she talks about a date that I had basically forgotten about at this point. My memory is. I had like essentially a forgotten that this man existed. So <laughs> Will that's Gaskins. where I started. <laughs> Will Gaskins. Once I Googled him, I did recognize him and remember him, but I, this storyline, like, had not stuck with me. Did you remember Will, Aaron? No, I, I literally was like, who? Who is this man? <laughs> um, like, is this a Mandela effect situation? Yeah, like, what's going, you know. And then when I Googled him, I remembered his face, but I could not remember anything about him being on the show. Like, not a thing. And Well, then- at least he did not really make an impression on any of us, which uh, we did go back and watch the date in question that Rachel discusses in the essay, and... It certainly made an impression on me this time and not in a positive way. The thing that Rachel draws out here is that Will is not, in her opinion, uh, and based on his dating history, interested in Black women romantically. And that this was kind of the thing that colored their whole date. And she says, you know, it was the worst date. He wouldn't hold my hand. He was so uncomfortable kissing me. There was music playing on the street and he didn't want to dance with me. A producer said, you're going to have to send him home at the end of the date. We can't even edit it to make it look like he likes you. So I think we have a clip of Will and Rachel kind of talking about his history dating uh, Black women and her history, her dating history. And we're going to play that. Let's just say there's a little bit of awkwardness in this conversation. Tell me what type of girl you like. Like, what do you look for in a relationship? Um, like, what are you attracted to? Um, you know, honestly, I've typically, you know, dated white girls. For typically most, for most or of only? My life. No, not only. Okay. Just mostly. You know, I, I grew up in a predominantly white you know, neighborhood area. And so that's what was available to me in college, kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was, you know, the pool that I was kind of working with. I mean, I grew up the same way. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that I dated predominantly non-black people. Yeah. You know, like I actually have predominantly dated black people. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, clearly I'm open to everyone at this point, but, (laughs) and I always have been, but, you know, me being, like I grew, like I told you, I pretty much grew up the same way you did. And 
I don't know. I didn't have that. I, no. I mean, no. So very, very similar, you know, upbringings, but very, but very, different very different paths. <laughs> <laughs> very different reactions to it. I wish everyone could have seen all of the many facial expressions being given while we were just re-listening to that clip. I think all of us were about to like crawl out of our skin fully. Absolutely. I just, you can tell that Rachel suspects this because she's like, so what kind of women do you like? What do you find attractive? Like, just say it. And he is not shy about saying it. I just love that her her line, I mean, this is like so, you know, lawyer of her, but like in like perf- in perfect in this scenario, right? Where she's like, Typically or mostly, or you know, you're just like, yeah, get to the me. I just re- I, hearing it back now. I actually do remember watching this because I remember being like, yeah, girl, ask the questions because th- these are the things you want to know, and then kick his ass right off of this show. If if you're, I can't imagine being the first black lead of this show and then getting a bunch of black men who don't date black women. Because it makes you feel like that person may not even desire you. Like, why are you here if you know that I am the the lead of this show and you're supposed to be proposing to me at the end of all of this? And I know, you know, Matt James faced kind of a lot of flack for this in his season of like the conversation very early on in the season about how people had expectations of who he was going to date and who he was going to choose. And, you know, for me as a, as a viewer, I want to know that, you know, the suitors and the people who are um, approaching these suitors are interested and attracted and, you know, really find Black women and men attractive and smart and people that they want to see themselves with for the rest of their lives. It's like, very important part of engaging in these kind of social experiments for for dating on television. It's like, don't just go on this show to be on TV, but go on this show because you want to be with a Black woman or you want to be with a Black man. Like, that is intention. And casting people with those intentions is very, very important for people who want to date people of the same race or of different races. It puts her in the position of rejecting a lot of the Black guys um, because they perhaps are not actually genuinely interested in her. Um, When she is under, I think, a lot of pressure to to not get it down to a group of white guys as the first Black bachelorette, but her options are limited by, by that. And yeah, imagine, like, has it ever been the case that a white lead has had to face the possibility that a significant or notable number of their contestants is not even interested in dating a person of the race that they are. Like, it is crazy. Like, it's it's cruel. It's frankly, it's cruel to put someone in that position. The entire point of being the lead of this show is that you are desirable and that these people desire to date you. Like, that is, even, even if every season, sure, there's people you just don't click with. There's people who, like, end up not being into the lead and vice versa. There is still, like, that is the fantasy that's being bought into by the audience, by everyone participating, that, like, this person is is, is someone who is desirable in, in a very, like, general way. And to then put her in the position to, like, have to reject people because she is, by social and physical cues, being rejected by them is just... A horrible position to put her in. I think when I was rewatching some of these clips, like she even says, you know, something like the, one of the most important things in is really in a relationship is to be desired, and that's so real. Anyone, anyone who's ever been in a relationship can I love tell how you we're that. like reduced now to being like it actually is important right. to be attracted to the <laughs> yeah. people you're in. Like, like yeah, right, like duh, like duh. I of course but I don't that's... even need to say this, but yeah, that is that is the level to which and and I think what's interesting is in her essay she sort of points out that production found this dynamic to be like an interesting thing to play with. And again, this goes back to you have white people making these production decisions, and so you have this 
dynamic, which is potentially incredibly painful, being played as like a fun storyline <laughs> for a white audience. It's it, just because like it's so interesting to see this black man who doesn't date black women, and it's yeah, just, I was it, infuriated by that. I think it was so revealing of just what happens when you're casting, like, like she says, it's all about optics. And she gets into this in a few different scenarios, but poor Rachel has to deal with this. And also, as she notes, navigate, like doing justice to the black men on the season. Um, when Kenny and Lee, who, you know, Kenny is, uh, a Black contestant. Lee is white and from the South, and as it turns out, has a sort of overtly racist social media history, and we reported about this a lot at the time, and it became a big storyline on the show. But she was not privy to a lot of information about kind of the racist bullying Lee was doing in the house. She just saw this drama happening and people shouting, and she was sort of like, I just want it to be over. I want to send Lee and Kenny home. And the producers were like, well, you can't send Kenny home. Like, we need him because he's black you can't just like send all the black contestants home and she's like what the fuck like how is this my problem like you guys did a terrible job casting the season and now i'm here like trying to like handle their stories with care and stuff and no one else is worrying about that except for me really and of course she's then the one who's going to get blowback from segments of the audience that are frustrated to see her send black men home like the lee thing was like so egregious. And I think even at the time, it was so egregious that it was, like, fairly obvious from yeah. an audience perspective. He was like, just going I in mean, there, was, like, needling the black men and then going and calling to them Rachel all and calling them aggressive. Yeah. He, then we found his tweets. So it was, it was very clear exactly what Lee was doing and what he was, like, brought in to do. And should we talk about the Brian and Peter dynamic? Because I do feel like that's Yes. Obviously, a huge part of what she gets into in the essay and and of the way we saw the season. So Rachel's said before, and she really gets into this in the essay, that she feels kind of robbed of her public love story. She fell in love with Brian, but the viewers were not behind it. He didn't get the kind of romantic portrayal that she thought he should. Instead, Peter sort of got that and became the fan favorite. Um, she points out that he was portrayed as this sort of Miami playboy, like Latin lover. His Colombian heritage was played up in this really heavy-handed way. I think we actually have a clip of the music that they tended to play when he walked in, which was sort of, I definitely meant to evoke his his Colombian background. Um, let's let's play that clip. Hey, Rachel. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Mwah. First of all, my name is Brian. Brian. Te quería decir que te oh. ves espectacular esta noche y no puedo esperar conocerte mejor. Did you get all that? Some of it. Some Something of about it. I look spectacular tonight. Yo. You get brownie points. You get brownie points for that. <laughs> so I have a question. Have you ever dated a Colombian guy before? Not Colombian. Oh, nope. girl. <laughs> You in Am trouble. I in? You oh, in trouble. Okay. You in trouble. But it's all good trouble. So look forward to getting to know you better. And I look forward to getting in trouble. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Mom. Nice See to you meet time. you. Bye-bye. I like trouble. Wow, it's very subtle. <laughs> you know, it's actually quite subtle. I take it back. That oh, one's, my God. Uh, you, oh, my could God. Hardly- even notice it. was it. so loud and so extensive. <laughs> oh. Like, there's, like, a break, and they're just like, let's turn the volume up like, on truly, this. I was like, oh, my God, is the music louder than he, he's talking? <laughs> like, what is... Yeah, they're like, just in case you missed it, he oh. is Latin. <laughs> yeah, she's troubled by this. Like, he, she says that he never felt more Latino than when he was on the show because producers really pushed him toward those topics and edit him, as we can, can hear, uh, to emphasize that. And meanwhile, Peter was this very, like, classic bachelorette hero, very white and, like, Midwestern, good, solid stock, maybe a little taciturn, not, like, Let's playboy. Let's be honest, though. Hotter than the majority of people who come Incredibly through Incredibly hot, but, like, sure. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> it's just remains hot. Um 
But yeah, like I something I remembered from watching the season was feeling like they never gave us a reason to invest in Brian. Like it was obvious she liked him, but we basically mostly saw them making out on their dates. We rarely got to see them engage in like really like meaty conversations, which is how obviously as a viewer you like attach yourself to certain characters and see your relate to them or feel empathy for them. And we got very little of that with Brian. Obviously, like, the music cues, et cetera, like, they were playing up a very specific stereotype um, or in a specific piece of his identity. And with Peter, like, we got a lot about him. We got to know him. So it makes sense that then, like, and he was really hot. So it makes sense that so many audience members were, like, very invested in him and then invested in like, Rachel seemed to be very into him as well. And so we became invested in that connection specifically. And that ended up, like, essentially being a punishment for her. And that is really sad. I didn't get, I never understood why she liked Brian. And I, and she said, and she's like, viewers thought he was cheesy. And I was like, yeah, I did <laughs> really? think I he admit was cheesy. It. And I still probably think he's cheesy. But I I do wish there were, you know, there's always stuff on these reality shows that end up on the cutting room floor that you never really see that really colors people's relationships in a way that, like, gets them to the final final rows or the final whatever show you're watching, right? And I was so blinded by the Prince Charmingness of, of Peter <laughs> that I was like, I don't want, I don't need to know anything about Brian. So, like, Give yeah. me more Peter. Um, Peter's end game here. Yes. There's a there's something that I kept thinking when I was rewatching those Will Gaskins moments. Uh when he talks to Rachel and he talks to Eric Bigger actually about his how he doesn't date black women, but he's totally interested in Rachel. And he just talks about it in this very like, well, almost as if to say, like, oh well, she's not my type. Like I don't normally go for someone like this, but like objectively speaking, she's very beautiful. Like, she is a great catch. Like, I'd have to be crazy to turn this person down. And I think that's almost how Peter is framed by the show, which is, like, he's objectively the perfect guy. Like, how could Rachel turn this down? And then instead of even showing her doing that, they very much make it seem like she would have picked him if he would have proposed and sort of undermined even her ability to be seen as choosing her her partner and and not being just rejected. Reading that, I, I remember that was my kind of one of my biggest takeaways is, is is you know if I were to go on the Bachelorette and decided to choose a white man, I mean he would look sound like Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean that is. That is what has been painted in our minds as he is the archetype for like what a good white man looks like and and is and all of that. And in some ways, I know that she said, I mean, she said that she felt robbed of it being like her public love story. But I'm just glad that she ended up having a love story and that she is married to Brian and they seem happily ever after that is what coming out of this she wanted she wanted to find her forever person and she got that and you know fuck it being a public display <laughs> of of whatever it is I'm, I'm just glad that it's a thing that she has and can hold on to after all of the crazy shit she had to go through like she's she still has her her partner her man and Hey, you know, that's all I could ask for. She really did an incredible job. She did an incredible job. I mean, even watching the clips of this season, I was reminded why she was, like, my favorite Bachelorette. And I actually, like, loved so many parts of her season. But I would imagine that the fact that she did meet her now husband on the show and was sort of able to access certain opportunities post-show that have now made her feel excited and fulfilled probably contributes to her, like, back and forth, confused feelings about being involved with it. It's like, and I think that there was something she touched on um, that I think a lot of people, especially women, especially women of color, are sort of made to feel like 
you should be grateful for being in the room. Like, you owe this thing because we gave you a chance to be seen. We gave you a chance to even be here. And therefore, like, you owe us some gratitude. And it feels like there was something about, you know, the interview with Chris Harrison that just, like, fully disabused her of that, like, feeling that she owed them anything. It's like suddenly she's here. She's on extra. She's the one conducting this interview. This man who had been positioned to her as this, like, magnanimous voice who was brought in when she needed, when what she needed was actual support from someone who understood her during filming. But this guy, this fucking guy was brought in. And he was just there. He was always there. And suddenly she's on the receiving end. And she's like, oh, he's just, here he is, just another garden variety racist, middle-aged white dude. And, like, I'm fucking done. Yeah. Power to her. Power to her. I'm very curious, just as a consumer, to see what happens now that she's gone and, like, what's next for her personally, but also for the franchise itself. We're going to take a quick break. Can you keep up? I like This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes there will be something that is just like nagging at me, bothering me about something in my life, and I just swirl it around and around and around in my head and don't quite know how to address it. And something that can really help me sort that through and like take action is therapy. I completely agree. I've been really stressed lately because I've just been getting sick over and over again. And before I know it, I'm feeling a lot of emotions and I don't even connect where they're coming from with the actual origin. We all carry around these stressors, right? And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a great safe space to get things off of your chest and figure out how to actually work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash love to see it today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash love to see it. Okay, so you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. <laughs> so important. I also just know myself. I I know that planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party, can get very stressful. And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender. I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A dot com. I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily... I can do something about that with Factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus, Keto, Vegetarian, something for every diet. Their fresh, never frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Make your whole day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. I love having a few factor meals just sitting in my fridge, especially because I work from home. 
it's so nice to finish up a taping and not have to figure out what to cook myself. Just look in my fridge and be like, oh, in two minutes, I can be eating mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice or tomato basil chicken risotto or Santa Fe style green chili beef skillet. And they always have a nice like vegetable side. It feels well-balanced. I feel full after, and it's not a headache at all. Head to factormeals.com slash LTSI50 and use code LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code LTSI50 at factormeals.com slash LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Oh, I'm so happy the weather is finally turning. If you, like me, have been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune, then Quince is for you. You can build up a lineup of timeless pieces that will keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings right on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for all these staples. I mean, linen is my favorite summer fabric. They have so many amazing linen staples. I also found my new go-to like summer running around to the playground in the coffee shop bag. It's the pebbled Italian leather front sling bag. I can just fit a wallet and my phone and my AirPods in it, maybe some lip balm. Absolutely perfect. I'm so obsessed with it. And the price was exactly what I wanted to. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while or even not that long knows that we love article. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my home right now. Coffee tables from article. That lovely chair out on my deck. Article. Our big console. Article. I'm My bed frame. Article. This is an article household. It is. And it's, I mean, it was an inspiration to me. We finally got our first article piece of furniture recently, our new couch. And my husband and I are both constantly just like, how did we live before this couch? This is such an improvement over what we had before. It's so comfortable. It just seems to get more comfortable every day. I mean, it's the couch you dream of. And the reason that we have both been able to find ideal furniture on Article is because Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. And their team of designers are all about finding that perfect balance between style, quality, and price because we all want the best of all of those three things united in one piece of furniture, right? Plus, they're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and, you know, looks good doing it. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash LTSI, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash LTSI for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. And we're back. She says she would always suggest a person of color for the next lead. She was hoping to see them continue a path that she thought maybe they'd started with her season, that like she had to be the person to break through that barrier that they would make a lot of mistakes with, with which they, they did, and that soon there would be another lead of color. And she kind of ticks through the disappointments, you know, that like on Ari's season, there was Cien who was gorgeous and accomplished and went pretty far on the season and seemed like a perfect candidate. A lot of us thought CN would be a great bachelorette. They passed over her. She was like, all right, well, I can understand why they would give it to Becca like next time. And then 
instead of Mike Johnson, who is fan favorite, incredibly handsome, 10,000 watt smile veteran. She says, and I want to quote this. Oh, this quote is so good. They chose someone with a pubescent haircut. Peter, (laughs) quote, make sure you know I'm half Latino, Weber. That was my break. I was like, please drag Peter. Drag Peter. I just love it. And she says this is when she decided to start speaking out publicly. She was like, if you're going to pass over Mike fucking Johnson for this fucking guy, then clearly what I'm doing in private is not Isn't working. Yeah. No, that, oh my God. I almost had forgotten it. There was so much that was so good in this essay. I'd almost forgotten about that. Claire, thank you for bringing it up. That's, (laughs) no, that was such a key. And then you see what happens. She begins to see, like, oh, you're finally just casting Tasha and Matt at the last minute, like, during the George Floyd protests. Like, that's yep. your response to, like, being publicly criticized in this very heightened moment um, of national awareness um, around racism. Now you're going to cast people of color, finally, or Black people, and... She's like, you need to do more. You need to apologize. You've been part of the problem. They put out a statement apologizing. She was like, great. Maybe they're actually going to change. And then Matt James' season was such a disaster. It was horrible. Um, A fucking mess from start to finish. And you can see her ticking through those things as well. Like, all the ways that they played up Matt's white side of his family and friendships the way that they only really introduced his father to kind of scapegoat him as an absentee dad and play into this stereotype. And by the time that Matt James' season aired, a lot of this was really, a lot of Bachelor viewers were becoming more aware of these things, and it was really obvious. But, like, the show hadn't done anything to address it. They were still stuck in this this space. Yeah, and I think they prioritized diversity, quote-unquote, without inclusion, without equity. And, like, that Matt James's season is what we get when you do that. Um, and that, like, in, in some ways did more harm than good. Like, it was a really hard, rough season um, and I think impacted Matt and obviously a lot of the women on his season. And it was, like, I think very rough for a lot of viewers. And so I would imagine by the time that this Chris Harrison thing happens, it's like we're already starting to see – Matt's season play out and there's just like thing after thing that they've done that is egregious in the framing of it. And then Rachel is like, I'm on the receiving end of a 15-minute tirade about the woke police from this guy who like wants me to be his bud. And who thinks apparently that racism, we weren't talking about people being racist in 2018. Like that Framing of that question, literally, I remember watching the video. You guys had sent it to me, and I was screaming. Like, are you kidding me? Oh, my God. I remember the day that dropped, and we were like, Aaron, I think, Aaron, Chris Harrison did a racism. I think we need, I think we should write about it. Or Everything is always the distant past, immediately, to to people uh, who are invested in, like, covering for or apologizing for racism it's like it could have been six weeks ago that rachel did these things and he would have been like well in her time on the show she's really grown and changed like (laughs) it's never something that is recent enough to address ever right um but like 2018 like buddy like we're basically all the same age now as we were then (laughs) yeah and also 2018 was yesterday like i feel like 2020 2019 like kind of lost years in my eyes also it was like two years after donald trump was elected i mean everything about it was just like no what you what reality were you living in obviously a very white one yeah and yeah so this is the point where she's like i'm getting huge amounts of racist blowback from the fandom and i'm being blamed for chris Maybe not hosting Katie's season. What a tragedy. And so she decides to step away. And I, I think related to that, maybe we should address a statement that, Kate, that, that Rachel put out after the piece went up, which is that the print magazine cover is Rachel. And the cover line is, oops, I blew up The Bachelor. 
So Rachel put out this statement. I'll read it. I worked with New York Magazine very closely on a cover feature where I was given the opportunity to tell my story and share my experience with the Bachelor franchise. It was deeply personal, but I felt it was important to share. While it was a very collaborative experience, they decided to misrepresent me with the headline that was chosen for the cover. Those are not my words, nor are they a reflection of how I feel. In fact, it is in stark contrast to the context of the piece. For me, it is very disappointing and disrespectful that the very notion I was trying to refute was used against me by the publication for a clickbait headline. My truth and my thoughts are told on the inside of the magazine, which I'm very proud of and hope you all read. So they did change the headline on digital, but, you know, the print magazine cover is the print magazine cover. Just a real fucking bummer. I saw her statement before I saw what the print headline was. Same. Same, yeah. We were a little confused at first because we hadn't seen it. And when I read it, I was like, not only is it a bad headline, it just, like, doesn't make any sense in the co- to me in the context of, like, Rachel herself. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It's not representative at all of her voice. Like, even the tone of it is... And I it's think very Britney sex kitten. Right. I think that's what she like the fact that it was written as though it could be interpreted as a quote um seems to be what she really took issue with. Um the the web headline was Rachel Lindsay has no roses left to burn. That's very clearly not written by her, not said by her. Right, that's very clearly a a, a cover, a, like a headline written by someone else. Whereas, "Oops, I blew up the Bachelor" is written in a first person, and voice. it very much again puts her positions her as being the person the destroyer. who destroyer the Bachelor. She's a destroyer of Bachelor worlds, but uh, also like the "Oops" makes it sound like it was an accident. Like everything yeah, that it was she both did intentional was, and she was not to blame. Yeah, and then the other part is. The I blew up the Bachelor narrative was attributed to Claire Crawley in her season, like everywhere. So why are we using this in the context of Rachel, who isn't saying that she did? It just, as soon as I saw I was like, this makes absolutely no sense. It, it didn't make sense. Also, like, the show is still happening. <laughs> right. Like, we're watching it. I, I'm aware, per the podcast, that I have about nine months worth of content coming my way. So, like, what are you talking about? I understand why they thought it was cute. Like, it's a little winky reference. Like, you don't need to know who Rachel is. You just need to have heard of The Bachelor to know what the piece is about. So I can see why they went for it. But, like, that is just that disconnect of, like, okay, well, now we're once again, like turning a bunch of blowback at her that is what she is explicitly trying to explain is not what happened in the sexual piece that that everyone worked very hard on. Um, and it's just really unfortunate that it ended up kind of coloring the, the distribution of the piece. And it's also um, likely, you know, like, we, we work in media. I don't think any, not everyone who reads this stuff, like, understands how many people at, like, who c- might be disconnected from each other go into sort of the packaging of this stuff like and and so it it likely wasn't you know the reporter the editor that worked with her on this piece that even wrote the cover line for the print cover like that's a completely different department and so I hope everyone just reads this piece because it it is her words those are like the the content of the piece is her words and they're really really important yeah don't not read the piece because of this she wants you to read the piece yeah and it's very insightful so rachel talks here and there about all of the harassment she's receives for being critical publicly of the show and of chris and of the fact that he ends up being sort of put on leave by the show after his interview with her um she talks about how the show has cultivated an audience in which many people are racist, are white and racist and, and expect a certain thing. And she says, quote, there is a bachelor nation and there is a bachelor clan. Bachelor clan is hateful, racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, and homophobic. They are afraid of change. They are afraid to be uncomfortable. She really went there. What did you guys think when you read this? I thought it was accurate. Yeah. I was surprised by how 
blunt she was in her wording. Not because I think she's wrong, but just like, it's just so no holds barred to really just be like, they're the clan. Yeah, I um, I hope they made this as a uh, like pull quote or a bigger quote in the actual print magazine too. But in online, it's pulled out of the story as like a standalone kind of quote. And I think it just, to call out the audience is, is I think a really important part of really dismantling, you know, there are toxic fandoms out there who will, you know, she said that she had death threats and all types of like horrible things. And like, I can't imagine deciding to be your most vulnerable self on national television, um, looking for love and then having people who are racist and aren't going to like you regardless of of what you do or say coming to attack you and that she called them out in that very precise language is I think really powerful um especially for people who I'm sure go to bat for her or like arguing with people on social media um about their racist views and like I'm glad she said it and I'm glad it was printed (laughs) yeah me too I I was taken aback in the best way. Um, I think that it it would help for for there to be more honest conversation about that because it is kind of, uh, you know, to call out the fandom is, I mean, they're just the consumers. What do they do? They sit at home, right? And they, but like consumers have power and the fandom has power um, and that they can use it for for ill. They can be coming from a bad place. And they now we have these two sort of somewhat distinct fan bases of the show. Not that like there's like a pure super not racist no. in the fandom necessarily, <laughs> but there is a side that is more progressive that generally wants to move towards having more inclusion and and then there's a side that really wants the same like white christian heteronormative bachelor to continue and be hosted by chris harrison until he dies (laughs) these are just like a supreme court appointment okay (laughs) truly (laughs) so yeah i mean these are pretty opposite visions of what the show is and that the show the franchise wants to keep all their eyeballs. They want to make everyone happy enough, which is why you see them, as Rachel points out, like kind of tiptoeing around racism, like sort of letting Garrett, you're going kind of like apologize and like everyone gloss over it when his sort of hateful likes on Instagram are discovered. But then, yeah, we'll sort of suspend Chris for now and see how things go. They're trying to walk that tightrope how is this going to play out? Like, how should this be navigated by viewers going forward? Like, I feel like there, this is some a dynamic that we've thought and talked a lot about. And I think that just, like, the gulf between these two camps has sort of grown. And I think for a long time, um, the show was able to to do this dance fairly well because they sort of winked at, like, whiteness in in sort of the core of the show, um, and they sidestepped meaty conversations. They sidestepped politics, religion outside of just kind of like alluding to faith. They avoided all of it and thus were able to court this audience of predominantly white women, but pretty politically diverse group of white women. And over the course of the last like five to 10 years, these conversations have become more explicit. And I also think a lot of people, a lot of white people who previously perhaps considered themselves to be progressive, but were able to sort of just like ignore shit have now been educated, activated. And so you have this almost all like inevitable thing coming to a head um, in a, in a really intense way. And I think that it's going to be on the show to make a choice and they are not, I don't think that you actually can keep the entirety of this audience in one piece. I actually don't think that you're able to do that. It's going to have to be at a certain point, one or the other. Like we're already seeing 
that there are people who were so exhausted by the racism of Matt James's season that they did not want to return, understandably, to watching the franchise. And there are also people who are obsessed with Chris Harrison, think he did nothing wrong, think he is the victim, and said, I'm no longer watching because you chose to, because he has faced any consequences for his bad behavior. So like- right. So right now they're just shedding viewers everywhere. Right. I think uh, they got to double when down. When is someone going to try to just like strike out and be like, we are GoFundMeing or Kickstartering a reality dating show hosted by Chris Harrison <laughs> and we're all going over there, you know? It's like Trump's blog. It'll go really well. One thing Rachel says is that, you know, Chris, when he was on the show, wasn't just the host. He was like the voice of the franchise for all this time, but he was also an executive producer. He was the head of the team that leads the show. She said, how does that trickle down until the series is made? The fish rots at the head and it was stank after that display, mm-hmm. uh, which I loved. And, it, and it's true. He wasn't just the host. He was part of the the production, the executive uh, team. and But also like, what does that mean about who's left, right? Like, it's still a Mike Fly's show. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see. I don't know if we if if Mike Fleiss will ever be separated from the show, but it will be interesting to see if there is any actual shift in the 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 approach. If if there are people who are empowered to to do things in a different way than was happening when Chris was sitting on his little perch. I guess we will see. Or the show will just become irrelevant and burn to the ground. Only time will tell. But Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with us. You know, I'm I'm happy my girl Rachel is free of the reins of Bachelor Nation. And I I hope there's more in store. I hope that's this piece is not the last we see of her publicly. Um, and you know, hey. Someone could pick up a little a little reality TV show of her and Brian. I'd watch it. I want. I'm curious. <laughs> ten out of ten. Ten out of ten like. would watch. Just a suggestion. Just and saying. Meanwhile, she is. I mean, she's a busy lady. She's got her TV hosting gigs. She's got her podcast with Van Lathan. Um, higher Learning. I'm glad she's too, that she's loosed from the the Bachelor expectation and that she can kind of. Focus on stuff that seems much more fun for her. And I think it's on those of us who are still watching to to carry on as much as we can um, together and and holding the show accountable um, the way that she always did so well. Absolutely. And that's it. That's it for Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks to our guest, Aaron Evans. Love to See It is produced by us, Emma Gray and Claire Fallon, and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Harry Huggins. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv, and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And if you like the show, please, please, please give us a rating. Five stars. Leave us a review. Help other people find our show. And if you want to get in touch, especially if you have ideas for future bonus episodes, you can email us at clareandemmapod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at love to see it pod and Instagram at clareandemmapod. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Emma Lady Rose. And I'm at Claire E. Fallon. We'll be back next week. Talk to you soon. Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.